0: Hello, and welcome back to Clinician's Brief, the podcast, the conversations behind the content. I'm your host, Dr. Alyssa Watson, and I'm here today with Dr. Matthew Kornia. Dr. Kornia wrote an article in a corresponding diagnostic tree on feline infectious peritonitis that were both featured in the November-December 2020 edition of Clinician's Brief. Hi, Dr. Kornia. How are you today? Not bad at all. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. I have ton of questions for you today about FIP, but before we dive in, could you tell us just a little bit about yourself and maybe your clinical interests? I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that they might include cats.
1: Maybe just a little bit. Yeah. Um, so I uh, graduated with my DVM from the Ontario Veterinary College in uh, Canada in 2014 and went into private practice. I did about 75% feline, about 25% ER medicine for six years, um, kind of throughout Southern Ontario and did a ABVP feline residency. Uh, then in 2020, I went back to the OVC and I'm now doing an internal medicine residency and DVSC degree. I live at home with uh, six kitties and a cockatiel. So uh, kind of of embraced the whole cat thing and um yeah fip has always been a a, definitely a disease of interest to me i've actually lost a couple of my own kitties to fip and so you know it has a personal connection there as well so something i definitely like to talk about
0: yeah Uh, so kind of as you mentioned fip is really a unique and kind of heartbreaking disease While we tend to think of infectious and contagious as synonymous when we're talking about diseases, that's not really the case with FIP. So could you walk us through how FIP develops after infection with feline enteric coronavirus?
1: Yeah, for sure, and I think this is something that's you know really important to to understand because I think we often have this viewpoint of FIP is just complicated and you know we don't really understand it, but you know really I think we do have a pretty good grasp. It's just it's a it's a complex series of events. So <clears throat> we definitely know feline enteric coronavirus affects a lot of cats, up to seventy percent of cats in in multi-cat household situations, and usually causes a mild, self-limiting diarrhea. A lot of people don't even know their cat ever had the infection, and even if they go to the vet, the vets don't diagnose it because it's it's mild. Mild diarrhea, it gets better. Most cats clear the infection, go on to, to live their life. In a percentage of animals, maybe about 10-ish percent, a mutation to that coronavirus occurs in, in the spike protein that changes it from an enterocyte tropism to a macrophage tropism. And you know, now it no longer is able to spread in the stool because it's, it's not replicating in the gut, it's, it's in the macrophages and, you know, kind of circulating in the body there. And you know, that's where kind of the next step comes in, because in, in most animals, you know, the body says, Hey, eh, well, there's a virus inside my macrophages. We'll mount a, you know, nice T helper one response. We'll get those CD8 cells there, we'll kill those macrophages, and you know, everything's all fine. And that's what happens in most cats. But there's a subset of these kitties who instead of mounting that proper TH1 response, mount more of a TH2 response. They get kind of more of that CD4 cell recruitment, start to make a lot of antibodies, which unfortunately don't do a lot of good for an intracellular pathogen. And that's when we start to get this kind of antibody mediated disease, circulating immune complexes, you know, inefficient viral killing. And that's where we get that kind of spectrum of, of wet to dry FIP, which really depends on a ratio of, of CD4 to CD8 response. You know, the animals who have a very pure, very kind of, you know, humoral immunity will tend to get more of a wet FIP, whereas the ones who have more of a cell-mediated component to it, not enough, but but some will tend to get more of a dry fit, and, you know, really a whole spectrum of disease in between. You know, I think that's kind of the, the pathogenesis of the disease summed up there.
0: Great, thank you. You mentioned in the In your article that the pathogenesis can be particularly hard to explain to pet owners. So when you're talking not to, you know, other clinicians and colleagues, do you have any scripted phrasing, analogies, something that can help clinicians explain this better to owners so that they can understand this complex disease?
1: Yeah, I think that's, you know, that's good because it's, you know, the conversation we just had, I think is very hard for for an average owner to, to understand there. And I think, you know, the conversation depends a lot on the owner, you know, what level of, of education and understanding they might have, um, you know, as well as the individual cat in, in front of me. And I don't think I have a kind of textbook, this explanation, but I just kind of go into, you know, okay, this is a viral disease, you know, it's caused by a virus, but it's something that also involves the cat's own immune system and, and some mutation events. So it is a, a complicated event. And really, I think I give them the explanation we just we just gave, just kind of maybe simplified a little bit. And, you know, we don't need to be talking about Th1 and Th2 and things like that, but just kind of saying like, hey, it is a virus, but it undergoes a mutation. There's almost an autoimmune aspect to it, you know, and it's a, a complicated condition that way. Um, you know, and I think certainly I, I can tailor that explanation to the, the level that people want. For some people, that's enough. And they say, hey, you know what, I don't need to know anymore. For other people that want more, we can, you know, get into a deeper discussion. I think, you know, in the last couple of years, it's become a harder discussion because as soon as I used to just say, it's a type of virus called a coronavirus, doesn't really matter. Right. You know, as soon as that <laughs> comes out now, you know, I'm almost hesitant to say that and I just leave it at, hey, it's a virus and, and let it go there because that's not a discussion we need to get into.
0: Yes, absolutely. that has been a tough time to talk about coronaviruses when they come up on that PCR as a general practitioner too. So um, I yeah, can understand definitely. that completely. Can we talk a little bit about the Revolta test? Okay, you, you, mm-hmm. you um, detail this test in the article that you wrote, and it is a prominent step in one path of the diagnostic tree that you wrote as well. Could you just go through the test protocol quickly for us?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's a really straightforward test to do. I think your gold standard protocol is to take about six to seven milliliters of distilled water and add a drop of glacial acetic acid to create this solution with a pH of around four. No one has glacial acetic acid. And so I usually just take a um, one of those kind of larger six milliliter no additives tubes, like you might use to submit urine or whatever from your, mm-hmm. your practice. Um, and I'll fill that with about you know four and a half, five mils of, of distilled water and just add a mil or so of table vinegar. That's getting us to about the same idea you know it doesn't really matter if you're using glacial acetic acid you just want a a weakly acidic acetic acid solution you know kind of mix that up and then you're just taking a drop of a fusion you know pleural or um peritoneal or wherever you're sampling it from and um you know in a little syringe just kind of gently putting a drop on the the top of that test tube there and looking to see what happens. Your negative test is exactly what you'd expect if you add a liquid to a liquid. It just kind of dissolves and disappears and, you know, it looks like a clear solution. And then in your positive tests, you'll get that kind of jellyfish or lava lamp effect where you see a glob kind of stay suspended. Sometimes it stays on top, sometimes it sinks to the bottom, but you'll always be able to see a little yellowy jellyfish drifting down that tube. And, you know, that suggests a positive test, that kind of cohesive effusion that stays as its own kind of intact structure.
0: Excellent. So I really wasn't familiar with that test. So I don't know if that is a regional um, thing that, you know, maybe the test is more commonly performed in Europe or Canada than it is here in the States. But I did go ahead and do kind of an informal poll on a A large Facebook group that I'm a member of. And I did find that about two thirds of the clinicians that I polled didn't know about the test, just like I didn't. And about one third knew about it, but they didn't use it fairly often. And then a few said, oh yeah, they use it, you know, every single time they have a cat with a fusion. So, you know, what are the real pros of using this test in practice for clinicians every day?
1: Right. Yeah. I think it's, you know, like any test, there are pros and and cons to it. I think the real pro to this test is the, you know, the cost and the ease of of doing it, right? And the fact that you're looking at pennies of, of supplies there and something that can be interpreted by you know your high school co-op. It's, it's a very easy test to perform and interpret and cost. And so, you know, the, the drawbacks, you know, kind of with, you know, in internal medicine. Now, a lot of the times we're talking about these fancy tests and, you know, it costs in the pocketbook and all that. Well, I mean, it's a it's a nothing test. Really, what it's allowing you to do is to determine that this fluid has a high inflammatory protein content and that's really what differentiates it from you know looking at a, a refractometer or an albumin globulin level or anything like that is it's not just telling you that there's a high amount of protein it's telling you that there's a high number of inflammatory proteins this isn't an animal who's leaking a bunch of albumin into its abdomen this isn't an animal who just has a lot of, of gamma globulins in its abdomen this is telling you that there's a lot of those kind of acute phase proteins fibrinogen haptoglobin or a those types of things and so really it's going to be positive in in three main diseases. That's going to be FIP, septic abdomens, or septic effusions of any kind, and, and then neoplastic effusions that have a high inflammatory content as well. And so a positive revolta is basically telling you this animal has either FIP, a septic process, or a neoplastic effusion. And that's where I think really then looking at your case makes sense. You know, the, the 12-week-old kitten that comes in with a belly full of fluid probably doesn't have a septic process and probably doesn't have a neoplastic effusion. So that's kind of a, you know, very high specificity for FIP. You know, your 10-year-old, eh, that's, that's a, lot of, a lot more of a toss-up there. Um, in terms of the, the geographical aspect to it, you know, I guess that's a bit hard for me to, to comment on there. Um, I think it is maybe used a bit more in Europe. You know, when you kind of mentioned to me your your informal poll there, you know, I asked a couple of my friends as well, you know, kind of in this area. The general answer I got is like, yes, Matt, we've heard about it. Stop talking about it. Um, <laughs> but uh, so I don't know that I wasn't a bit biased, but um, uh, yeah, I, I don't know how geographic it is necessarily, but I think it's a, you know, easy enough to do test kind of wherever you are.
0: Yeah. I'm so, yeah, I certainly don't want to have a potential FIP case, but it is one that if I have one come in the door, I'm really interested to try this test, which I've never done before. Who here really enjoys talking about nutrition with clients? Even if you don't hate it, Do you even have enough time? Let's face it, these conversations aren't fun, but they are important. So important that 9 out of 10 pet parents look to you for a nutrition recommendation. That's why Hills created Quick Reco, an easy to use tool to help you have more productive nutrition conversations, personalize feeding plans, and make sure clients understand the importance of your recommendation. Learn more at quickreco.hillsvet.com. That's quickreco, Q U I C K R E C O.hillsvet.com. If we could let's talk a little bit more about those hypothetical cases you were kind of uh, bringing up before the break so we'll say case one is a two and a half year old neutered male domestic short hair with ascites and has a fever case two is a 14 year old spayed female domestic short hair that has some weight loss even though she seems to have had a good appetite she doesn't have a fever but she also does have ascites. And both of these cats have a positive Revolta test. So can you go through the different approach you would take to these ones and how high or low would FIP be on your list of differentials for each case?
1: Yeah, for sure. So I think, you know, looking at these, neither of these is my slam dunk FIP, right? And, you know, obviously, I'm, I'm limited here. I don't have a CBC and a chem and, you know, all the information I'd obviously like, but just kind of from, from what we're working off of, you know, my two-year-old cat, yeah, I mean, he's a little bit old. Any cat can get FIP for sure, but maybe a little bit older than our average. But, you know, that fever, ascites certainly probably would be my higher FIP candidate if I had to pick one of those cats to, to likely have it. Um, You know, case two, my 14-year-old DSA I mean, yeah, older cats, definitely, we, we think we see a little bit of a spike in the geriatric population, so FIP could certainly happen there. The good appetite's a bit weird. The lack of fever's a bit weird. You know, I guess, in general, my 14-year-old cats have a lot more reasons to have ascites, right? I guess neither of these would necessarily be the one where I was saying a positive Revolta makes or breaks this to me.
0: Oh, throwing me out a hypothetical where you would say a positive Revolta, I think this yeah, is so FIP-
1: that's my 12-week-old, right? That's my my 12- to 14-week-old cat who comes in with with a fever, with ascites. I mean, I'd love to see a little high bilirubin, neutrophilia, you know, all those kinds of things, too. But, I mean, if I'm in a situation where I've just got, you know, no money and a kitten with a pot belly and I'm, I'm poking its belly and getting some fluid, that 12-week-old febrile not-eating kitten with a positive revolta, I, I don't know what else causes that, right? You know, I mean, sure, I guess this young guy could have a septic abdomen, um, but generally that's going to be your fifth case um you know i think in in either of those ones that you've uh, you've detailed there i mean my next step is is going to be cytology of that abdominal effusion right you know and i think in my my two year old if i'm seeing you know neoplastic cells, if I'm seeing angry neutrophils and bacteria, you know, even if you have the resources, uh, you know, a, a kind of quats, blood gas analysis on the fluid and seeing, you know, do we have a low lactate, do we have a high lactate, do we have a low glucose, you know, does this look like a septic effusion um, is really the big thing I'm ruling out in that two-year-old. And, you know, certainly the, the two-year-old could have cancer, but if it doesn't have a septic effusion, if I'm seeing cytologic evidence of, a, you know, kind of mixed inflammation, not terribly cellular, yeah, that's one where I'm starting to prioritize FIP a lot more you know that older cat i start saying oh gosh you know there's so many things there this could be a cancer this could be a i guess a septic abdomen i mean the good appetite with weight loss makes me think, is this like a, a hyperthyroid cat with right-sided heart failure secondary to that? I mean, I've just got so many possible differentials there. I think that my Revolta test has has ruled out the heart failure, but I still think my, my septic abdomen and my neoplasia are, are on the list for, for either of those cats.
0: They're higher on the list. Wonderful. So let's move a little bit, if we could, into treatment, especially because, you know, as we were talking about the current COVID-19 pandemic, there is a lot of research surrounding anti-coronavirus therapies, vaccines in humans. You know, do you think we're finally going to have access to some reliable treatments for FIP?
1: I mean, that's a bit of a loaded question, I think. Because, <laughs> you know, there's, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's true. Um, you know, there's a big part of me that wants to say, like, n- not only do I think we will, but, but we do. The question, I guess, could be framed as, do you think we are going to have legal, approved, readily available access to these therapies? And, you know, I think the answer to that is yes. I I don't know when, but I think the answer is yes. But I mean, the... um, Black market or gray market or however you want to kind of define it, FIP drums are are fairly readily available and, you know, at least from the data that exists, fairly effective. And I mean, in my experience, I mean, my last FIP case was two weeks ago. Now that we diagnosed it, and as of yesterday, was eating, gaining weight, afebrile, and and looking great. So I mean, I think we do have access to these drugs, the access is just dubious at this point. You know, remdesivir is certainly a drug with potential. um, And it seems like, um, you know, GS441524, which is the active form of remdesivir and and probably the most commonly used anti-FIP drug right now, probably works better to treat FIP in cats than it does to treat COVID in humans. And so I think there is a huge amount of potential there. I guess the big question is, you know, when we get availability to that, what the cost is going to be, what the practicality is going to be, you know, all of those kinds of things. Because right now, you know, Gilead is obviously focusing 100% of the remdesivir on on COVID, um, you know, and, and, you know, with good justification there. And I think the big question is, is it going to be available commercially, cheaply enough and readily available enough for us to start using it in cats, you know, that it's going to supplant the current kind of gray black market access to these drugs?
0: Exactly. Okay, so and and when we don't have access to those those medications, those drugs, you know, what are the best things that we can be doing to help? You know, these kitties maybe relieve some of their discomfort. Uh, medications there.
1: Yeah, and I think you know that's a, that's a tough one um, because certainly you know even in the situations where these drugs are are available, they're they're very expensive still, and you know a lot of people just aren't comfortable with the kind of dubious process of attaining them. And so there are still definitely a lot of cats with FIP who, for whatever reason, you know, can't have access to that kind of therapy. And those are really, really sad, really tough cases. I mean, we know that the median survival time of a cat with wet FIP is is days, you know, is, is seven to nine days. And, you know, people have tried everything under the sun. You know, I myself have tried everything under the sun. And, you know, nothing really seems to make a lot of difference. Um, you know, interferons have been thrown at these guys. And, you know, I think in North America, at least it's, it's hard enough to get feline interferons. Um, that it's it's not a practical choice most of the time and, you know, hasn't been terribly promising. Um, people have tried these different immunostimulants without much success. I mean, I guess personally, I, I put them on Pred, you know, Serenia, Mirtazapine, Buprenorphine, whatever we need for that. I'm not personally convinced any of them actually do an awful lot to, to prolong the life of these kitties. Um, it, we're basically just trying to keep them comfortable until the owners can, can kind of come to a a grasp on the, the situation. Dry FIPS are a little bit better, you know, dry FIPS, you might be able to to justify a little bit more aggressive therapy. But again, you know, even with the steroid question, is that that helping them because it it's reducing their inflammatory process? Or is it is it hurting them because you're you're immunosuppressing them in the face of a viral infection? And you know, I think you could argue back and forth about that. But uh, you know, really I think um, it's it's very palliative in, in the absence of these anti
0: Yeah. Along those palliative lines, do you find with, uh, especially with animals, certainly with pleural effusion, but even with ascites, just like therapeutic tapping, draining to make them more comfortable helps at all? And do you worry about, you know, draining them too quickly or drops in blood pressure or anything like that?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that with pleural effusion, it's it's a lot more easy of a a question, right? If they can't breathe, everything else is moot. Um, You know, I... I think a lot of the plural effusion speed of draining and volume of draining comes down to the cardicity. You know, if this is a cat who's relatively acute, um, you know, you can drain it pretty pretty quickly. Um, some of these cats who've had longer standing effusions and might have some pleuritis and some fibrin tags and things, it can be a little bit more tricky to, to drain them. Um, in terms of the abdominal effusion, I think if there are these guys who have like the turgid abdomen where you can kind of play the drum on them and they're they're very very tense, certainly decompressing those guys can be helpful. I think just to kind of relieve some of that abdominal stretch. Um, I'm not sure I'm going to try to drain every drop out of them. You know, I definitely understand the logic as well of we don't want to overdrain them, have them reaffuse and drop their albumin. And I think that might be a relevant question if I'm treating these cats, like if they're on an anti-coronaviral, you know, and then I want to prolong their longevity and not drop their albumin too much. Um, For the ones that are being palliated, honestly, their survival is so poor, I don't think it makes a difference. Um, You know, we will keep them comfortable, but I I don't really care what happens to their albumin because even to be completely frank, I I don't think they're going to live long enough to to see the outcome of that.
0: That's so devastating, you know, Um, and hopefully like like we said, we can see these therapies on the horizon and, and maybe get some more access to them for not just for, you know, clinicians, but, you know, for the, the families that have these kittens and, and love them. It would just be beautiful to have some of these therapies to have some more access to them. So thank you for talking to us about FIP today. Before we let you go, I do have, I didn't know if you'd want to. We like to play a little game at the end of of our podcasts. I've got some questions, some kind of would you rather questions that I was going to throw at you. Yeah. And you just um, don't think about it. Just answer whichever whichever you think is best. Um, There's no right or wrong answers. All right? Sounds good. Okay. All right. So first off, would you rather do surgery on your own pet or would you rather have a trusted colleague do it? My own pet. Your own pet. All right. Oh, yeah. Would you rather practice without alone or without gabapentin? Gabapentin. Okay. You're flying across the country and you're going to give an important presentation when you get there but as the cabin door closes, you realize you left something at the security checkpoint. Would you rather it be your phone or your laptop?
1: That's a hard one. Um, I guess for the presentation, probably my phone. Okay.
0: And is the correct abbreviation of subcutaneous SC or SQ? SQ. Right. I said there were no right or wrong answers, but that's
1: right. That that, that one had a right (laughs) or wrong answer.
0: (laughs) last one and the most important one if cats wore pants would the pants have two legs or four legs two legs two legs all right those are great answers thank you for playing (laughs) anytime (laughs) well i really want to say thank you for sharing your expertise with us today i for one feel like i have some new insight on how to tackle some of these suspected cases when they come into the clinic Uh, Again, for those of you at home, Dr. Corneo's two articles can be found in the November-December 2020 edition of Clinician's Brief. Thanks, Doc. Thanks a lot. Thanks again to today's guest for joining us, and thank you for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. While you're there, make sure you subscribe, rate, and review us. You can also listen to our podcast on our website at cliniciansbrief.com podcasts. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Clinicians and on Instagram at clinicians.brief or drop us a line at podcast@briefmedia.com. Clinicians Brief the podcast is a brief media production produced by Alexis Ussery, sound by Randall Stupka, and hosted by me, Dr. Alyssa Watson.